What do we think of Pope? <laughs> Meaning what? <laughs> I never understand what he's about. Uh, really? What's an example? Um, just like all the, the references that he makes. To um, poets and critics and... Yeah. Or... Okay, well, um, all of it? Um, <laughs> no. Not all of it. No, like if he talks about Milton or Homer, you know. Right. Yeah, okay. Or Dryden. Yeah. Or Wilmot. He does talk about Rochester. Um, or Swift. <laughs> there's a, I didn't assign it, but there's a parody of Swift. Um, or not a parody of Swift, but one thing that Pope was really good at was, um, uh, and one of the things that he thinks about being good at is um, um, what are called uh, adaptations or poems in the mode of, so that, uh, or imitations. So uh, if you have, for example, um, this book, which I hope you do, uh, the, the great thing about this book is it's an amazing text of Pope. Um, it's all his poetry. Um, it's the one-volume version of the standard many-volume edition of Pope. The reason the many-volume edition of Pope is many volumes is it has extensive footnotes. Um, this probably is a little bit um, light on, the, on footnotes that are not by Pope. Um, a lot of the footnotes are Pope's, and if Pope wrote a footnote, it's in here. Um, but a lot of footnotes are, a lot of things that you might want explained to you don't get explained because it's fitting it all in one volume. But it's still, um, this, this is a famous and great paperback edition of Pope. Um, if you go to, for example, page 664 of this edition, uh, what you'll see is um, the, second, um, the second epistle of the first book of Horace imitated in the manner of Dr. Swift, um, written in 1738, so just about the same time that uh, Swift is writing some of the stuff that we read a little bit after um, the verses on the death of Dr. Swift, where Dr. Swift speaks of Pope, um, among others. And so this is Pope sounding like Swift. "'Tis true, my lord, I gave my word. I would be with you, June the 3rd. Change it to August, and in short, have kept it as you do at court." That is, I didn't actually show up the way I was supposed to, because people at court are never on time. Um, never punctual as to dates. You humor me when I am sick. Why not when I am splenotic? Um, in town, what objects could I meet? The shops shut up in every street. The funerals blackening all the doors and yet more melancholy whores. Um, so it's funny. It's, it's worth reading. We won't do it now. Um, but the point is that Pope is really good at channeling others. And a poem like this is Pope um, channeling Swift's way of translating Horace. Um, so they're a cut. So he's doing two things simultaneously. Remember what Swift said about Pope that he can do in one couplet what takes Swift six. Um, Swift acknowledged Pope as the great poet of his age. Um, Pope acknowledged Dryden as the great poet of the time. He was twelve when Dryden died, um, and there's a sense in which what he's doing is. Um, uh, wants to be the new Dryden, the Dryden for a new age. Um, he has, I'll just tell you this, he has a lot of strictures on Dryden also. That is, he, um, Pope is the purest writer of heroic couplets of anyone. Um, and what that purity means um, 
is that he very rarely uses triplets. It's something that he complains about in Dryden, that Dryden um, was completely um, uh, unpredictable as to when he would use a triplet. Um, Pope will use them occasionally, but um, rarely. And he kind of suggests that Dryden, um, if he sees that he can get a third rhyming line in, he will. Um, Pope won't. Pope is very deliberate in his use of them. His rhymes are also very pure, um, much purer than anyone else's in English. Um, Pope is the person to go to if you, wanna, uh, if you want the most accurate um, sense of what words rhymed. Um, what pronunciation was like in the early 18th century. If two words are made to rhyme in Pope, they rhyme perfectly. Um, we to we've talked about this several times, but the, the, uh, the join um, wine rhyme, for example, or join line, um, for us that's not a rhyme. Uh, for Dryden, we already know it's a rhyme. He does it a lot, but the fact that it appears in Pope is an absolute guarantee that that's a perfect rhyme. It's join line. Um, we know for other, for other reasons that, that the way join was pronounced was join. Um, but that's a perfect rhyme. Another thing Pope will rarely do, and he, com and he um, complain is too strong a word, but he argues that Dryden did it too much, is Pope will rarely put a pause, a significant pause, or the strongest pause in a line, um, in anywhere except towards the middle. Um, that is, Dryden will um, put strong pauses after any foot in the line, in fact, after any syllable in the line. That's how he, he varies things. Pope won't. Um, Pope makes his lines pause, as heroic couplets always have to do in order not to get completely stultifying and boring. Pope will make his lines pause, but the pauses will, something like 75 or 80% of the time, be after the second or the third foot not after the first or the fourth. Um, Dryden will do first and fourth foot pauses a lot, but Pope just won't. Um, it's not never, um, and these are um, part of the point of the essay and criticism, which we're going to spend some time on today. Part of the point of the essay and criticism is that um, only following rules is insane, um, that, it's, that poetry is not about rule following. Um, but that it's about um, the pleasure and the insight and the power and the depth and the penetration um, that poetry gives you. Um, but um, nevertheless, for Pope, part of that pleasure was um, making it as beautiful as it could be. And for him, it was somewhat less beautiful if the pauses were too varied. Um, another thing that you will find in Pope, this isn't intentional. The stuff that I've mentioned so far is, is, more, is intentional. He knew all this. That is, he explicitly wanted his rhymes to be pure. He explicitly did not want to use triplets in his poetry um, beyond a very small number. He didn't want to do a lot of triplet writing. Um, he explicitly wanted the pauses to come towards the middle of the line. Those are all very explicit on his part. And he also didn't really like Alexandrians. Um, his name is Alexander Pope, so for him, they would have been something he might have been um, particularly allergic to. He didn't want to go around being called, oh, look, there's Alexandrian Alexander. Um, but um, another thing about Pope, which he probably wasn't thinking about, explicitly, but which illustrates um, 
a f something that he's saying about how poetry works is that you'll find that um, very rarely are the same parts of speech rhymed in Pope. Um, any rhyme word is going to rhyme with a different part of speech. Um, by rarely, I don't mean, oh my god, look, I found one, but um, that, that you can count on something like 90% of the rhymes, 85, 90% of the rhymes being of different parts of speech. And usually when he's rhyming the same part of speech, um, he's got a reason for doing it. Um, that is to say that um, he's imitating um, a certain kind of plottingness, or he's describing things plotting along, or he's describing stasis, or he's describing inflexibility. Um, but generally, part of the fluidity with which Pope writes um, comes, um, it can be seen also in an unconscious and unintended um, taste for rhyming different parts of speech. He's not thinking about the part of speech, it's just that it sounds better to him and to us if different parts of speech are rhyming. Um, that's, an, that's an intuition or an instinct the, that he has for writing poetry that we can um, name and specify and say, oh look, that's cool, that's what he's doing. Um, just to, see, to give you an example of what I mean, not in Pope, but in intuition or instinct, um, those of you who know James Joyce's novel, The Dead, a novel, his long short story, The Dead, um, there's, a, there's a sentence at the end of the story where um, uh, Joyce or Gabriel Conroy are thinking about, um, is thinking about um, the, um, the sea outside of Shannon in Ireland and the phrase is um, that there are dark mutant, that the waves there are dark mutinous Shannon waves. And um, it's a very, that, that th those words really sound joycey and dark, the, that, that cluster of adjectives, dark, mutinous, Shannon waves. And I was thinking about, well, what makes that sound so joycey? What's the signature there? And Joyce didn't think at all what I'm about to say. But the amazing thing about that phrase is that every vowel is different. There is no assonance in that phrase at all. Dark mutinous shannon waves. All those different vowel sounds and none repeat. And it's that difference in the sound of vowels that Joyce heard but didn't um, register as a difference in vowel sounds. It sounded right to him for what he wanted to say. It sounded um, to him as though it gave the sense, the oral sense that he wanted. Oral, A-U-R-A-L sense that he wanted. The same with Pope's rhymes. It sounded better to him. Um, the rhymes that he wrote, writes are the rhymes that sound good to him, and it turns out that the rhymes that sound good to him and that sound good to us are rhymes where you get variety and similarity put together here by way of parts of speech. So again, we've been talking about that over and over again in the heroic couplet, the combination of um, parallel and divergence, of um, a couplet with these rhymes that come with sure returns of still expected rhymes, as Pope says in the essay and criticism. Um, they come, and you know that they're coming, and yet there's always something to keep you alert, to surprise you, to give you a sense of something meaningful occurring. Um, and it's a neat thing that you can see that that occurs as parts of speech in Pope. 
Um, as far as the references go, so the main thing that we read for today, I mean, uh, or the main thing we'll look at today, um, and probably the most important thing that we read today is the essay and criticism. And is that the one that's, Marielle, that's, um, yeah, so the essay and criticism is partly like Dryden, it's very topical. That is, he's talking about a lot of um, both critics and poets who are, um, who, who are um, contemporaries or near contemporaries of his. Um, but it's not a great poem because of the topical material in it. Um, it's a great poem because of um, what he has to say about um, the relation of poet, uh, well, how poetry should be, what poetry is, and also the relationship of um, poetry to judgment, um, the relationship of writers to readers. Um, that's something I want to get to in a second, but just to start um, a little bit to give you a sense of a different kind of pope. We're going we're gonna to do some funny pope. Um, well, we're going to do a lot of funny pope. Um, but here's a famous couplet of his. This is page 826. Um, and uh, this, this is... Uh, um, probably the most famous of Pope's pointed epigrams. Um, so this is the epigram engraved. This is like a title longer than the poem it's a title for. Epigram engraved on the collar of a dog which I gave to his royal highness. Um, so um, he gave, the, he gave the, the collar, not the dog. Um, so he gives his collar and engraved on it is this. I am his highness dog at Q. Q being one of the residences of the king. I am his highness dog at Q. Pray tell me, sir, whose dog are you? Um, you're supposed to laugh. Oh, well. I do my best. All right, or go back a couple of pages where he's talking about... Um, Collie Kibber... Um, whom he doesn't like, um, and there are there 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 are a couple of them. But the, look at the second one, Kibber. Write all thy verses upon glasses. That is, um, engrave your verse in stained glass. Page eight twenty two. Um, Kibber, write all thy verses upon glasses. The only way to save them from our. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Because otherwise, well, we've seen this joke over and over again, right? Martyrs of, the, martyrs of pies and relics of the bum, as Dryden calls all the crappy poetry that um, gets published. Um, so yeah, if you, want, if you don't want people using your verses to wipe their asses, then um, you should write them in stained glass, because no one is going to um, do that. Or look at the one just below it. Epigram on one who made long epitaphs. Epitaphs are verses written on gravestones. Friend, for your epitaphs I'm grieved, where still so much is said. One half will never be believed, the other never read. Um, so the, uh, he's, Pope's point is, um, is brevity, Brevity is the soul of wit, um, as Hamlet says, but Pope accepts. I mean, the play Hamlet says, um, and Pope accepts. His point is brevity and sharpness. Um, and um, he's so good at the heroic couplet um, because, the, because his couplets are so sharp. I hope one of the things you notice is how many famous lines are in the essay on criticism. Um, 
Do you remember any of them? Famous ones that you didn't know Pope wrote? Yeah. Yeah, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Good. Any others? There's one that's probably even more, more famous. To err is human. To forgive divine. Yeah, so those are, those are um, lines that have become proverbial. Um, and who knew that they were parts of heroic couplets? Um, there's something really interesting about the fact that Pope can produce half a heroic couplet, and even that is so memorable by itself um, that it that um, you think it's proverbial wisdom. You think it goes, you know, the way proverbs do to the beginning of time, even though they can't because they're in English. Um, but yeah, they don't come from Shakespeare. They don't come, um, and they're not proverbs. They haven't been around forever. Um, they come from Pope. And Pope, at the age of, do you know how old he was when he wrote the essay on criticism? Anyone check? 21. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, here I am a little older than that, and I still couldn't write it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so this is, this is Pope bursting on the scene, really, um, as an extremely young poet. He's already well known. I mean, it's not, he's not quite bursting on the scene from nowhere. Um, he's extraordinary. He's sort of like Mozart. He's extraordinarily talented um, with language, extraordinarily young. Um, his ambitions as a poet um, are both comic and philosophical and a little bit. Um, Dryden is his main man. Um, Dryden is the person that he most respects, although he has some problems with Dryden, both poetically and politically. Um, but um, Dryden is the person he most reveres, and his ambition, like Dryden's, is to write serious poetry as well as comic poetry. Um, it's his comic poetry that is now remembered. But part of the problem with comic poetry is, the, and this is what you're saying, Marielle, is that a lot of it is incidental or occasional. That is, um, it's about people who are forgotten. Um, and we're going to read a really long version of that, the Dunciad. But you have to read it as though you're reading, a hard, as though you're reading not a hard novel, but a rich or a dense novel. Um, that is a novel with a lot of topical allusions where you can guess what the people who are being made fun of are like simply on the basis of the fact they're be that they're being made fun of. Um, so you don't actually have to know um, what, who Kali Kipper is or what you feel about him um, to feel that it's funny to say that, it, that he should write in stained glass and not on paper. Um, you don't have to know who a lot of the people Pope is talking about um, to see what's funny about what he has to say about them. Um, one of the things we're going to read just so you look at it now is if you go to, um, I guess it starts on page... Um, uh, 709, um, there's, there is the four-book version of the Dunciad. Um, has anyone heard that phrase before, the Dunciad? So what do you think the joke is in the title? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's an epic poem about how many dunces there are in the world, like the Iliad or the Aeneid, the Dunciad. So it's the world is full of dunces and fools. Um, it was provoked by the fact that probably Shakespeare's greatest editor, um, a man named Lewis Tibble, 
um, was, as all good editors are, completely pedantic. Um, and he was doing an edition of Shakespeare. And Pope did an edition of Shakespeare as well. And Tybalt just destroyed Pope's edition. Um, he said, just Pope has no idea what he's doing. And, and all his, you know, he's just making mistake after mistake after mistake. And, um, and he was right. Pope's edition of Shakespeare um, is, is not a good edition of Shakespeare by any means. Interesting if you're interested in Pope. Less interesting if you're interested in Shakespeare. Um, and Tybalt completely destroyed him, but Pope paid him back essentially by making him the chief of dunces. Um, and so he decided to essentially write an epic poem about how many dunces there are in the world. And the dunciad is that poem. So if you look at, at the version that starts on page 709, which is um, basically the version we're going to read, you'll see that there's a lot of poetry and a fair number of footnotes. And what you'll see is um, that those footnotes, almost all of them, um, will have greater than and less than signs bracketing. Um, uh, you know, just turn, for example, page 782. Um, so um, the long my party, and then A3281 right underneath that, these shall the patriot, etc. A3299. Um, and uh, then Polypheme, he translated the Italian opera of Polyphemo, but unfortunately lost the whole gist of the story. Um, here, that's Pope's footnote. Um, then under that, 308, 309, Faustus, Pluto, etc., names of miserable farces, which dot, 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 audience, A307, ensure it, but from fire, A3310. Now what he's referring to is, um, well, let's go to exactly the right page, is if you go to page 420, what you'll see is that those are the Twickenham editions um, cross-references to the first version of the Dunciad, um, which has much more extensive footnotes by Pope. Um, so the first version of the Dunciad has probably, go to page 412 just to show you an example. Um, if you go to page 412, you'll see that there are, um, on page 412, there are about 10 lines of poetry, and then three quarters of the page is commentary. On page 413, there are five lines of poetry, and 80% of the page is commentary. All those footnotes are Pope's footnotes, and what they are is a parody of scholarly footnoting. Um, so the footnotes are an essential part of the poetry in the Dunciad. Um, sometimes um, they're saying where an illusion comes from. Sometimes they're a parody um, to, to, of, of the way that scholars um, speak. I do here and agree with Mr. H. Little is it of avail to object that such words are become unintelligible, since they are truly English. Men ought to understand them, and such as are for uniformity should think such as are for uniformity should think all alterations in a language strange, abominable, and unwarrantable. Rightly, therefore, I say again, hath our poet used ancient words and poured them forth as a precious ointment upon good old Wormius in this place. So signs um, uh, Scriblerus, um, and we'll talk more about who and what Scrib. Scriblerus is later on. But the point is, so you get huge numbers of pedantic footnotes. And the very fact that they're pedantic shows you that Pope um, 
knows that his allusions to contemporaries is pedantic. So basically what I'm saying is you have to suck it up. Um, that is, uh, when Pope is being topical, um, you can just figure out what he means. Um, it's completely worth it. Uh, what we'll read for uh, Friday is The Rape of the Lock. Um, let me, well, I should just tell you now what to read for Friday. So read The read the Rape of the Lock, which is on page 217, and um, Eloisa to Abelard, which is um, page 252. Um, and, but let's go to um, the essay and criticism, which starts on um, page 144. Eloisa to Abelard. So do people know who Eloisa and Abelard are? Anyone? You sort of know? Say what you sort of know. Priest. Priest. <laughs> yes, and he fell in love with with Eloise, and he would um, go see her. Their their love letters actually survive, um, and he was eventually caught and punished unpleasantly. Um, so so they're they're a famous illicit romance um, from medieval times, and so what Pope writes is um, a poem in her voice to him. Um, all right, but let's look at then the essay on criticism, as I say, written when he's 21. Um, so what's it about? Yeah, Liz. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes. <laughs> um, there used to be good critics and there used to be good poets, but now things are all messed up. Um, and it's partly that criticism, the tail is wagging the dog. Um, the criticism is um, determining poetry, determining what should be written in poetry, how poetry should be written. So what, what are the faults of bad criticism? Um, what is it that he's writing against? What does bad criticism want or demand? Yeah. Um, I guess the, I mean, I felt that he said that um, you can't really judge a guy's genius, so don't try to sound Okay, so don't try to sound smarter than you actually are. Um, don't try to judge without experience. This is um, something he's saying about both poetry and critics. Yeah, go on. Also, um, I think that's part about don't judge a, a poet's or a poem by one part or another part of all. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so it's when, when you judge a work of art or a poem, um, look at the whole thing. Um, don't try and um, judge it on the basis of how it does one thing, but look at how everything comes together. Okay, good. What else? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yes, please do fund it. All right. 
what's um, what's his view? Just to the extent that you remembered at all, what's his view of the relationship, let's say, between Homer and Virgil? How did Homer get to be such a good poet? How did Virgil get to be such a good poet? Do you not remember? Are you not answering because you don't remember or because you're afraid it'll be wrong? Liz. I think I remember him saying like Homer wrote the way that nature describes yes. something. Right. Which I don't know what that means, but Well, in a way it's what I was saying about Pope's um, not rhyming parts of speech. That is to say, so he so here's a poem called an essay on criticism. And um, to the extent that it's an essay, it's not unreasonable, as you'll see when we read his essay on man. Um, to the extent that it's an essay, even though it's not unreasonable, you might be surprised to find that it's in verse. Um, essays are usually, and now almost entirely, a prose genre. Um, the person who invented the term is Montaigne, and um, his essays were all prose. Um, the word essay means, um, means uh, an exploration or, or an attempt to try, trying something on for size, trying something out. So the genre of the essay is um, a little bit more formal than a blog, but less, um, less formal than a um, forensic argument. Um, it's let's see where this takes us, let's explore this issue. It's not, when you, when you take a course called writing the essay or when you're supposed to write an essay for um, an English class, um, mostly you're not meant to think of it as that way, but a little bit you are, which is to say that essays are supposed to, you're supposed to learn something in the writing. You're not just um, putting down what you already know, but you're exploring something on paper. Um, that's really um, a very general definition of what an essay is. Still, it's surprising to see an essay in heroic couplets, which require a great deal of finish and a great deal of art. And there is supposed to be a little bit of a surprise there. Um, now, part of the reason for that is that what an essay is, is an exploration. What a poem is, is a highly refined and finished expression of things. What critics write are essays. And um, if we're talking about essays in the context of poetry, then what critics will write are essays on poetry. Um, but here is an essay on poetry, because it really is an essay on poetry. Here is an essay on poetry that is itself written as a poem. And so the very form of the essay on criticism is from the start suggesting um, that the talents of a poet include critical talents, include talents of insight. And the talents of a critic um, also have to include something like poetic talents, that is a sense of when something is done right, um, a sense of, yeah, this works. Um, if you think about um, 
a very baseline theory of literary interpretation, if any of you has ever done any creative writing or any writing at all. Um, what you'll know is that sometimes you'll have an idea and you'll say, sounds good, let me sleep on it, no. Or let me nap on it, or let me just think about it for a second, no. Um, and sometimes, wow, that really works. And the idea of poetic inspiration um, down the ages is um, metaphorically a muse comes to the poet and, um, and inspires him or her with the words that the poet then writes. Um, but what the real life um, uh, thing that that story is about is a sense that you have an idea, but now you have to refine the idea. Um, something strikes you, but now you have to make it work. You get the inspiration, but now the perspiration comes, and you have to um, figure out how to turn um, that thing that struck you into something that works on paper. And that second activity for Pope is going to be something like a critical activity. You get material, and now you have to figure out what parts to leave in and what parts to take out, what parts work and what parts don't work, what you have to say to make it clear that the parts, why the parts that work do work, what, how you have to, um, what you have to do with them in order to fit them into the whole thing. So part of Pope's point is that you have to be able to think critically to write a poem. And you also have to have some real knowledge of what poetry is as inspiration, as some um, privileged access to truth in order to write good criticism. So when he gets to Homer, what he says about Homer is, what is it again, Liz? Yeah, um, and what that then means is that Homer um, gets the inspiration, sees what the world is like, and then he doesn't say, huh, there's this thing called poetry that I somehow have to um, bring next to nature and see the extent to which I can make poetry um, imitate or mimic nature. That's not what Homer thought. For Pope, Homer invented poetry, this is putting it a little bit too strongly, but usefully, Homer invented poetry by copying nature. Poetry, in some sense, is a copy of nature, not a copy as in, um, I have a different medium, now I have to do it, but rather, um, people speak, people get angry, people get upset, and Homer shows that. And the result is poetry. Yeah, Leah. How does that relate to the line, um uh, those oft are stratagems which errors seem, nor is it Homer nods but we that dream. Yeah, it's good. I really liked that line, but then when I thought about it, I was like, I don't really understand Okay, it. go, what, like sorry, off. remind me where that uh, is. Top of page 150. Um, so you mentioned Homer, yeah. that's the line I remember. Yeah, so let's go, let's go back to, one, um, to line 169. I know there are, to whose presumptuous thoughts, those freer beauties e'en in them seem, how uh, are we going to pronounce it? Say it? Yeah, thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, Chumley's 
How do you spell Chumleys? Yeah, so this is, this is kind of British, a little bit of a British slur here. I know there are to whose presumptuous thoughts those freer beauties, even them seem faults. Well, not farts, but faults. Um, some figures monstrous and misshaped appear considered singly or beheld too near. So if you look too closely, these things may seem monstrous or, or misshapen. Uh, misshaped is always a very interesting word in Pope. Um, and some people have, have really um, picked up on his um, thinking about misshapenness because he was a hunchback and, um, and did complain, as you'll see in his epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot, um, of his own twisted body, um, where he was incredibly graceful and you could say where he overcompensated for um, what he felt was physical deformity. Um, was in his poetry. So um, there's some who think that some figures are monstrous and misshapen, but they're wrong, he says, considered singly or beheld too near, which, but proportion to their light or place, do distance reconciles to form and grace. That is, if you see them from the right distance, then you see that they actually, there is form and grace there. Um, and, he's, and what he's basically saying is think of a, think of a, think of a painting. If you get too close to the painting and look at it from the wrong angle, it doesn't look like a good painting. You have to stand. There's For any painting in perspective, there's a perfect point to view it from. That's the definition of perspective, that there is one perfect point for perspectival painting. Um, and uh, there's a lot of looseness in where you can look at a painting from, but you don't have infinite looseness. If you crouch in front of a painting and look straight up and it's right um, above your head, um, the stuff at the bottom is going to look way too big and the stuff at the top is going to look way too small. And if you're the kind of critic Pope is against, you're going to say, oh no, you know, look at, that, look at that dog at the bottom of the cathedral. It's gigantic. And look at the top of the cathedral. You can barely see it. But that's the angle you're looking at. That's not the painting itself. So that's his point here. Some figures monstrous and misshaped appear considered singly or beheld too near, which but proportion to their light or place do distance reconciles to form and grace. A prudent chief not always must display his powers in equal ranks and fair array. So a good, soul, a good uh, general is careful about showing his army. But with the occasion and the place comply, conceal his force, may seem sometimes to fly. Those oft are stratagems which errors seem, nor is it Homer nods but we that dream. Now, you're right that um, it's not really Homer he's talking about here. Um, and um, he's, he doesn't really see, or he's not, in, he's not emphasizing the way Homer is um, a strategic poet. But um, he does think there are poetic strategies. Um, and in fact, the Romans um, were the ones who learned them. Um, but the idea, do you know where Homer nods comes from? What that phrase means? Does anyone? Is there a note on it? Probably not. Nope. Um, anyone heard it before? So it's Horace, who um, Pope, who's also written a poem called The Art of Poetry, um, probably the most famous single poem about writing poetry, the Ars Poetica of Horace. Um, in the Ars Poetica, Horace gives a lot of rules for writing poetry, which Pope more or less agrees with. 
Um, and Pope reveres Horace, and rightly does. Um, Horace is first century BC, um, contemporary of Virgil. Well, we looked at, a, at, at um, Dryden's translation of Horace. Remember the, um, the poem to Virgil, which Dryden um, adapted to his friend Ross Common about um, a ship that takes my friend, be very careful because he's the poet of the age. Um, so Horace is Horace's Poetica. The most fam the thing you probably know from it is that an epic should plunge in medias race. That is, uh, when an epic starts, you should be right in the midst of violence or battle, not go through a long introduction. So that's from Horace's Art of Poetry. Um, in the Art of Poetry, Horace says that sometimes um, we get um, disgusted e because even Homer will not. And by nodding, he means that Homer falls asleep over his own poem and forgets something which is inconsistent. Um, and examples of Homer nodding are that a character is killed in book four of the Iliad, but reappears as alive in book 15 of the Iliad. So, you know, there's something like a thousand characters in the Iliad, and so a minor character reappears. It's a mistake that scholars found, but that Homer wasn't aware of. Um, and so the phrase for that is, even Homer nods. Um, and it's nods off to sleep. It's um, what, Horace what Horace means by that is the way people after dinner, you've seen um, your grandparents do this, right? They sort of, they're in the conversation and, and they pretend that they haven't done that. Um, that's called nodding. It's because you're nodding. Um, so that, so, but what Pope is saying is actually Homer knows what he's about. Don't be a captious critic. Don't look for um, any error that you can, you can say, snag, you made an error here. We are the ones who are asleep if we think that we know our business, know Homer's business better than he does. Now, in fact, just so you know, Pope actually does talk about places that Homer nods in his own translation of the Iliad. Um, so it's not that he doesn't think Homer makes mistakes, but his point is it doesn't matter that Homer makes mistakes. Um, his larger point is no poem can be perfect. Or, um, well, he does say no poem can be perfect, that um, the desire for perfection um, is what's going to um, make a poem not any good at all. Um, and it's, um, uh, so if you go a little bit, I, I, maybe this is an important moment, is line 233, which is on the next page. Um, here he's talking about criticism again when he call, talks of a perfect judge. Uh, he says, a perfect judge will read each work of wit with the same spirit that its author writ. Survey the whole, nor seek slight faults to find where nature moves and rapture warms the mind, nor lose for that malignant, dull delight the generous pleasure to be charmed with wit. So pr I believe, although I'm not certain, that, that he pronounced delight delit. Um, that is, it's, this would have been a perfect rhyme. Um, and I think wit is, it, it is pronounced um, with a short I, but I think uh, delight was as well, delit. Um, you can, I mean, if you can imagine, uh, I guess the strongest accent that would 
that we can imagine that would help us, if you just want to know the perfect rhymes, is imagine it a little bit Cockney. Um, so you, it's easier to imagine um, a kind of Cockney accent as, not a lose governor for that malignant, dull delit, the generous pleasure to be charmed with wit. But it would be much harder to get to be charmed with white. <laughs> um, so um, what he's saying here is what matters, though which is that it's really easy to find fault and you get a little bit of pleasure out of it. Um, that is, oh, look, blooper. Um, ha ha, I saw the blooper there. Um, and you miss the much greater pleasure that the work is offering you. And that if you really want to know what is great about a work of literature, then you should read it in the spirit that it's written in. That is, you should try to get out of it what the author is putting into it. Um, which you guys taking this class, you really need to be doing. No one, except maybe for some of the obscene stuff, no 21st century person um, stays up late haunted by 18th century poetry. You know, it's not like reading this fantastic love poetry um, about um, the um, uh, sorrows and cares of human life and so on. Um, it's stuff that's very clever, extremely well done, um, very discursive, but not the kind of thing that if you're really miserable over a breakup or something, you're going you're gonna to take to the graveyard to read and feel deep um, with. Um, and that's what really, that's what poetry is when it's most important to us, is stuff that um, helps us feel deep and gives us words for our own um, depths of feeling. And 18th century poetry is not that kind of poetry. Um, so it requires you to um, really um, think about what the poets are trying to do and how well they do what they're trying to do, which is really amazingly well. But our taste is not for this kind of poetry. 21st century taste, um, 20th century taste is not for this kind of poetry. And so it's a taste you have to cultivate. And Pope is actually talking about that, saying that you have to cultivate um, whatever poet you're reading, if the poet doesn't strike you immediately as great, um, don't start looking for faults, but start trying to see what was the poet doing. Try to get into the right mindset to see what's going on in this poet. That's what he's saying here. And he's partly saying it because the French, um, this is something that Dryden also points out, the French and the post-Restoration English thought that Shakespeare was so full of error and so full of mistake and so full of um, no knowledge of dramatic form that they had contempt for him. Voltaire, very famously, had utter contempt for Shakespeare. And so here's Shakespeare, in a way, wherever you see Homer, you can put Shakespeare in, um, in Pope. Um, here's Shakespeare who, who and, and maybe this is, is an answer to you, Liz, that here's Shakespeare who's a complete genius um, who writes the greatest poetry and the greatest plays ever written. Um, and he does it without much training. Um, he does it because what he's doing is following nature. And because he is so perceptive, poetry automatically is the result that what it takes is the sublime and universal perceptiveness of Shakespeare. And it's that perceptiveness 
that leads to the greatness of his poetry. So Pope's point, and it might be a surprising point in someone who is so artificial, that is, all this poetry is extremely artificial, 18th century poetry. If you say that natural poetry is um, what free verse aspires to, it's what Pound was trying to do in the 20th century, what other um, contemporary poets try to do, that natural poetry is, is aims at pure expressiveness. That is, you say how you feel about something. You don't explain it. You don't narrate it. You don't say, one day um, I was um, walking by the Chicago River, and um, I got to thinking about the meeting that I had to have later that day, and I was feeling really frustrated. So I said, I can't stand the fact that I have a meeting later today. That's narrative. That's not poetry. But poetry is, you know, the, um, the ice flows in the river make me think how empty life is. Um, and that's pure expressiveness. Um, and um, Pope is at the opposite end from that. The 18th century poetry that we're reading is at the opposite end. So far, um, you're going to see some version of much pure expressiveness later. But the 18th century poetry that we're reading is artificial. It's um, extremely careful. Um, in its effects. It's highly constrained by its requirements by writing in the heroic couplet, um, most of all. Um, and then, um, so what you never will feel, um, or let me put it another way, um, imagine what it would be like to, which, which French actors actually have and had to do, um, to be an actor in a play written in heroic couplets. Um, imagine how hard it would be um, to do the kind of method acting thing where you really feel that the character is expressing how she feels when everything she's expressing are in very um, careful and clever rhymes. Um, it's going to be very hard to get a, to get a method acting um, performance out of that, you know, to have someone say, well, what I really, you know, think of, in a way, this is the opposite of Chekhov. Um, everything here has high polish and high finish. Whereas method acting is great for Shakespeare, because Shakespeare, you really feel the passions are dictating the words, rather than the words being clever reproductions, um, clever um, condensations of the passions. Um, and um, the, the, which, is, which is what you get in 18th century poetry. Um, so the point, though, is enter into the spirit of the thing and appreciate it for the amazing things that it's trying to do and that it does do, rather than simply saying, that's not what I want from poetry. Um, and that's what Pope is asking us to do here. So what he's saying then about Homer is Homer's poetry was dictated by his insight into life. And so Homer, as a poet, in a way, he's a pure poet um, because he's simply expressing life. And then what happens is people come along and they say, Homer, he gives us the rules for poetry. And what they forget is, no, life gives us the rules for poetry, partly through Homer, because Homer is so good at writing poetry based on life. So the rules for poetry are to be found in the world. The rules for poetry is what the world, tell, telling the truth about how the world 
works, how it makes you feel, how it makes people feel, how what it does to the human mind, what it does to the human soul, um, what it, how it um, organizes the dynamics of human relationship. Um, all of that um, comes from the world. And the person who follows, um, who, who's best able to depict what the world is saying, best able to follow what the world is saying, is the greatest poet, and that was Homer. And then people, there are two things that you can do with Homer. And one is to say, ah, Homer shows the rules that you have to write poetry. Now I'm going to write poetry like Homer's, which means I'm going to write dactylic hexameter with a, with a spondy in the fifth foot and with a caesura in the fourth, because that's what Homer does. Um, and the other possibility is to say, oh, Homer has made me see more about the world, and now I want to write poetry too. And Pope is on the second side. And he says the great person who understood that was Virgil. And Virgil was partly great for two reasons. This is the second big step that he makes in the poem. Virgil was great for two reasons, or two of the reasons contributing to Virgil's greatness are um, that he understood how great Homer was and understood that Homer's greatness was that he saw the world afresh, that, that being great wasn't being an imitator of Homer, but that being great was to try to see the world as Homer did. But then he also understood that he wasn't going to be able to see the world any better than Homer did, and that the best thing he could then do would be to continue what Homer had done. So that Homer's greatness is absolute, and Virgil's greatness is the right attitude towards Homer, that through Homer he saw the world, and he saw the world through Homer, that both those things mattered. Those are not quite the same thing. He did, treat the he did treat the world, and he gave up trying to treat it differently from the way Homer did, because he saw that Homer saw the world, saw it accurately. And so Virgil's greatness was to be a person who understood Homer's greatness and tried to match it, not to imitate it, but to match it in his own poetry. Jonathan, your hand was up. Did you find the? Um, I have Sorry? I have OK, go ahead. Uh-huh. Did the rest of the poem or a stronger statement? I mean, then the last page. I mean, a stronger statement. Okay, yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the end of the poem. So, well, it's, yeah, there's one page left after that. Um, so, um, yeah, he's finally talking, he's finally gotten to the present. Um, uh, so, yeah, but soon... So here he's doing a little bit of the history of poetry um, after the fall of Rome. Um, and he says, well, yeah, you know, went all over the world and the French became servile um, because they were rule followers um, and um, quiche eaters, um, whereas in England um, there were some really great poets. So, but, um, so just started line 709. Again, notice that what he's doing here is he's describing in epic terms um, 
almost in Virgilian terms, uh, a war fought in Italy in which the good guys lose, which might be, um, it's a partial, uh, a highly biased um, summary of the Aeneid, but that might be a summary of the Aeneid. A war fought in Latium, Latium, as he would have called it, I think, in Italy, where the good guys lose. Um, so, but soon by impious arms from Latium chased, their ancient bounds, the banished muses passed. It would actually be, I, I won't keep pointing out that the rhymes are perfect, but they are. Um, even if they're not for us, they were then. But soon by impious arms from Latium chased, their ancient bounds, the banished muses passed. So they left Italy, they passed their ancient boundaries, Italy and Greece, the banished muses did. Where do they go? Thence arts or all the northern world advance, but critic learning flourished most in France. So France is the place where everyone is um, very careful about being pedantic. The rules a nation born to serve obeys and Boileau still in right of Horace sways. So Boileau is a French critic who um, um, was, was uh, the equivalent of Horace in France. He was giving the rules for poetry. Um, Pope actually liked him, but he's also a watchword of pedantry. Um, and so what he's saying is that, um, that in France, a nation born to serve obeys all the rules of poetry. So it's a cut against the French. They're servile. Um, and so they will obey all the poetic rules, which is why you get all this boring French poetry. Um, why Racine and Corneille, according to Pope and to um, Dryden, are infinitely inferior to Shakespeare. Um, Corneille in particular is who he's thinking of. Um, the rules a nation born to serve obeys, and Boileau still in right of Horace sways. But we, brave Britons, foreign laws despised, and kept unconquered and uncivilized, fierce for the liberties of wit, and bold, we still defied the Romans as of old. So the British, unlike the French, defied the Romans in the same way that when Caesar conquered Britain and the Roman Empire um, tried to take over the, the um, British Isles, um, the um, original British people, the original um, Angles and Saxons fought against them. Um, and Rome could not subdue Britain and eventually had to leave Britain. Um, so the conquest of Britain begins with Caesar and it ends, it doesn't last. Um, the British, Hadrian, you probably know that Hadrian's wall is the limit of um, Roman power in Britain. So, um, but the British drive the Romans with their Roman rules out, um, unlike the French. So this is why he's saying English poetry is the best modern poetry in the world. Um, yet some there were among the sounder few of those who less presumed and better knew, who durst assert the juster ancient cause, and here, and here that is in England, restored wit's fundamental laws. Um, so there were some who got what mattered in ancient poetry, not its rules, but its laws, its fundamental laws. And fundamental laws, here you have to understand that fundamental laws is something different from rules. If you do something by the rules, 
then you don't know why you're following the rules. It's like when um, you have to write a five-paragraph essay. Why? Because you were taught that was the rule. Um, but that's, that's a rule but not a law. The fundamental law is the essay has to develop and has to say something. The rule is just um, an attempt to codify something which is not itself, but, but they're not themselves the place where the insight is. The insight is the law. So there's a crucial but typical distinction here between rules and fundamental laws. Yeah? I had a general question about Pope. Um, why all the italics? Um, partly he's telling you how to voice it. It's not only Pope. That's just typography at the time. This is the first edition that we're reading that is reproducing the typography very carefully. Um, that it, it's following the rules, but maybe not the laws of textual editing by doing that. Um, so they're misleading until you get used to them, but you'll get used to them, and then you'll stop paying attention to them. Um, I t the history of italics is actually something I know something about. Um, and uh, the basic thing is people were like Cosmo ad italics happy um, in the 18th century, um, but that's, they're really, what they're doing is they're just um, giving you a little bit of a sense of, of um, the emphasis of the voice. They're not, oh my god. Um, it's that when you see just or ancient costs and fundamental laws, you're supposed to put those together. Um, there are connections drawn between those phrases. Um, the general rule, however, just so you know, is um, it still survives today, but only in an in a extremely attenuated version. Proper names were italicized um, until the 18th century. Um, so any poem, any work of literature that you're reading, if you read Paradise Lost, you will see that Adam, Eve, Satan, Raphael, every time anyone is mentioned by name, their name is in italics. Um, this survives in italicization of book titles. Um, that is, uh, there are still proper names that we properly put in italics even now, um, namely the title of a book. Um, italics are actually often used very similarly to quotation marks. Um, and that connection survives in the fact that you've been taught the rule, not the law, but the rule, that if you're talking about a short piece of work, a short story or a, po or a short poem, you put in quotation marks in your paper, right? Um, but if you're talking about something long, you put it in italics or you underline it, which is a typographical equivalent of italics. Does anyone underline anymore for titles? No. So that's, it used to be that you underlined back when typewriters didn't type in italics. Um, so for example, um, an ode on St. Cecilia's Day would be in quotation marks, right? But the Dunciad would be in italics if you write your paper on those two things. Um, but those are survivals of um, older rules about the use of italics. And then because there are italics everywhere, people started just putting them wherever they wanted. Um, so and here restored with fundamental laws, such was the muse whose rules and practice tell nature's chief masterpiece is writing well. So that's, that's in italics because that's a proverb he wants you to remember. Um, he wants you to remember that more than fools rush in where angels fear to tread or to err is human to forgive divine. Um, this is what he really wants you to remember. 
because that's, as you say, Jonathan, that sums up the entire poem. Nature's chief masterpiece is writing well. Um, nature dictates good writing. And the greater the thing in nature, the better the writing that it will almost automatically produce. Um, and it produces it through people <coughs> who are able to perceive nature. So nature's chief masterpiece is writing well means the best critic of nature, the person whose judgment of nature, critic in the sense of someone who has extremely good, careful, um, perceptive judgment, the best critic in that sense is also the best poet, um, will write best about the world, about the truth, about nature. Um, and so here he's talking about Roscommon, um, and then he says, as for me, you know, I'm kind of humble, um, but what I like to think about myself, just since we are at the end, um, the learned or the learned reflect on what before they knew, careless of censure, nor too fond of fame, so they don't care if anyone criticizes them, nor are they too fond of fame, still pleased to praise, yet not afraid to blame, averse alike to flatter or offend, not free from faults, nor yet too vain to mend. So that's how he wants to think of himself, not free from faults and not too vain to mend. The one fault he doesn't have is vanity. He says, of course poems have faults. It's almost inevitable. The one fault that you should avoid is to be too proud to own your faults. Um, the most famous, some of you who've done English 11 will know this, but the most famous um, section of um, the essay on criticism is, um, oh, what about a little learning is a dangerous thing? Is, was that familiar to people? Um, so yeah, that's also um, from this. That usually is remembered as part of a couplet, though. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. Um, go to uh, page 154. This is at line 337. And we'll just look at this briefly, because Partly, again, um, uh, the very question that Mariel asked, which is, what about all these references? Some of these you should know now. A few of them you should know. So he's complaining um, at line 337 what bad critics are like, what bad judgment is like. And he says, but most by numbers judge a poet's song. That is, most people judge whether a song by a poet is good or not by whether it keeps meter. That's the only thing that counts for them. But most by numbers judge a poet's song, and smooth or rough with them is right or wrong. And here, Leah, the italics matter, because what you can feel is, and smooth or rough with them is right or wrong. That is, smooth or rough, right or wrong, are being um, put into, are being paralleled with each other. And that's the point. Um, that line is, is it smooth or rough? Couldn't be smoother. It's da-da, 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 da-da. It's perfect iambic pentameter. And smooth or rough with them is right or wrong. Um, so it's a perfect line if you're judging this poem by numbers, by the numbers, by whether it's perfect iambic pentameter. It is. And then what about the next line? In the bright muse, the thousand charms conspire. So tell me which of these two lines I'm going to give you the rhythm of when I go da-da, 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 da-da. 
I'm doing one of those lines. Which one? Everyone see that it's and smooth or rough with them is right or wrong? And what about if I say da 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 da? You can hear immediately, even if you think, well, now you guys are so used to heroic couplets that you probably really are getting the meter. Um, but you can hear immediately that that's not in any way a perfect iambic line. Um, and yet, what he's saying is there are a whole bunch of charms in that line that the previous line doesn't have. In the bright muse, though thousand charms conspire, her voice is all these tuneful fools admire. That is, those who simply want to hear the rhythm. Who haunt Parnassus, but to please their ear, not mend their minds. As some to church repair, not for the doctrine, but the music there. So people go to church only to make sure it sounds right. Um, so you see that, bra that brace, as it's called, next to those three lines, admire, ear, repair. And there's an earlier one on the page. Unlucky as Fungoso in the play, these sparks with awkward vanity display what the fine gentleman wore yesterday. Um, those are called braces, and typographically in the 18th century, um, they were put in to mark um, triplets. So again, that's something that in the Dryden we read um, in, uh, in, in original um, edition reproductions, you would have seen those there also. That's called a brace. Um, so that because it, it, partly so that people won't be won't stumble when they say wait a second this line doesn't rhyme or wait I thought I was going to get a new rhyme here it makes it a little bit it's a little bit user friendly for the reader um, to do it um, the little surprise that we get when we come upon an unexpected triplet it's damped down by the fact that our eye sees that as we're coming along um, but that's just so you know the terminology there so. These people, those who judge a poet's song by numbers, these equal syllables alone require. So equal syllables there again means that the syllables all fall into play, all fall into place. So it's these equal syllables alone require. Um, and notice that that's not that easy a line to say. These equal syllables alone require. It doesn't do a lot of things that you want really good poetry to do, but it does do the equal syllables. So it's an example of what the fools want. Um, Though off the ear the open vowels tire. What's the point about that line? What do you think an open vowel is? Are you talking about, he's talking about vowel sounds? Or yeah. Like well, he's actually talking about words that end with vowels or begin with vowels. That is vowels. I mean, it's open vowels because you open your mouth, yes. But in this case, it's open vowels because they're not framed by consonants that make something easier to, to um, say. So everyone chant that line on three, that one, though oft. One, two, three. Though oft the ear, the open vowels tire. What's hard about that line? Is a glottal stop yeah, the oft is actually what makes it easy, probably. Um, what's, I mean, what's hard in the sense of difficult about <coughs> saying that line? Or hearing it? Leo. Yeah, it's the waft. Um, it's hard to see where, and then the ear. So it works poetically as long as you're very precise. The oft, the 
ear. Um, but it's, it's in a way too smooth, and its smoothness becomes a kind of slur. The off, the ear, the open, vowels, tire. So it's an example of what's wrong with it. Um, though off the ear, the open vowels tire. While expletives, their feeble A do join. What do you think the word expletive means there? It doesn't mean what it means in the Nixon White House, which is a curse. Though expletives, their feeble A do join. All right, let me ask it this way. What's wrong with that line? Okay, the two, do as italicize when it shouldn't have a rhythm. What do you think of it if you if someone just said that line to you? That is, or if you were, um, if you came upon some shredded paper that a student had written, and all you saw was that line, would you know it's a line of poetry? Without a rhyme, just that line by itself. While expletives, their feeble aid do join. How would that go in prose? Would it? It's the revert, you would have said like, um, their feeble aid is joined by expletive. Yeah, or while expletives join their feeble aid, yeah. something like that. Um, if you, how many of you have tried writing rhymed poetry? Really? <laughs> well, if you ever try, one thing you'll notice is that you'll often have to add a do to a line to make it rhyme. That is, um, the problem is you can say, um, um, I was, so I was so happy when I found her glove because she was the one I really loved. No, that doesn't work. Oh, I know, I really did love. Um, and that did is just put in so that the love and glove will rhyme. Um, you put a do or a did in because that affects the grammar of the verb. And so while expletives, their feeble aid join, that screws up the line. But do join, and then you have it. Or um, um, he does join the army instead of he joins the army. The do or the does will make it possible um, to add or subtract an S in order to make a line, a rhyme work. Here, the do is there in order to give it 10 syllables, while expletives, their feeble aid, do join. So what's the expletive in the line? Do, joining its feeble aid to the line. So again, it's an example of what he's against. And 10 low words oft creep in one dull line. How many words in that line? Yep, and 10 low words oft creep in one dull line. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll start from there tomorrow. But that's a bravura um, passage where Pope is giving examples of what he talks about things in the very um, form that he's, that he's discussing. He discusses form in the form that he's discussing.